Hello everyone. In this episode, I spoke with Russ Tedrick, the Vice President of Robotics Research at TRI. In this episode, we spoke about Drake, a physics engine simulator they designed at TRI for rigid and soft bodies. And it was really interesting to go for these details of the physics engine tool and also what it could be hard problems for soft robotics. I am Marwa Dwini and this is the Soft Robotics Podcast and here's my interview. Thank you. So I'd like to ask you first how you'd like to define uh, yourself. How do I define myself? Yeah. I guess I'm a roboticist. Um, I'm a roboticist at MIT and at TRI, Toyota Research Institute. So um, I've been doing robots for a long time now. I, I feel like every time the new grad students come in, I realize how long I've been working at it. So, so I'm curious to ask you, what could be the hard, most hard question in robotics you still don't know answer for? Well, there's long-term answers and there's mid-term answers. I think uh, in the mid-term, I think one of the things relevant to this podcast is I, I, I think we still haven't done enough to understand how to do control through contact, and that's a passion of mine. Um, long-term, I think there's many huge open challenges. I understand you work on healing robots. I think that that's a grand... I mean, we want robots that grow and heal and, and do all the things that... Um, the good things that biology does. Um, we want to understand uh, the implications for, for uh, a more general intelligence of, of embodied um, you know, artificial intelligence. So I think there's, there's big long-term things, but um, I think soft robotics is right at this point where it can really, there's a lot of good things we can do and we will understand over the next few years. Mm-hmm, great. And what could be the challenging? For example, for your TRI, what could be maybe the grand challenges to still have to work on? Yeah, I see. Okay, so at, at TRI, um, it's actually fantastic. We have been um, focused on trying to build robots that could help people in the home, and that's actually a a, a fantastic vision. Um, that it's actually important, even if it's not the shortest path to economic success. It's important for society. It's important for the world to address the problem of um, helping people age in place um, and having allowing robots to ultimately fulfill their, their purpose in the home. So, so at TRI, that is our, our North Star for the robotics effort, is to really think about the core capabilities that we want to invent that are required to get robots into the home. Mm-hmm. Great. So um, I, I was reading uh, what you wrote about Drake uh, and that open source robotics toolbox. So first of all, thanks for sharing that. And um, I just want to mention something because I think when I was reading, everything was very honest about that, the challenges we have for open source tools. And since two years I was working on and, uh, and material and soft robotics, this material has very young modules and and it was really hard even to capture its dynamics in this you speak in this uh, about the tool that most important thing is a physics engine. And that's something we struggle with in the community. I don't know. Of course, it depends what kind of uh, properties or what kind of system we want to simulate. But when I was reading about what you tried to stress about, it's very interesting. Even this, this comment I would like to mention here, you said that some people would say that the problem we are tackling in robotics are too complex to be treated with clean mathematics. And you said that you strongly disagree. And I find this really, yeah, reflecting a lot of things about how we designed the physics engine simulator and what kind of intricacies we have that we can't really capture what we want exactly. If you can tell us more about that. Yes, absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. I think... Um... 
I think that because of the success of deep learning, um, I think people are often quickly saying that we don't want to use physics-based solutions anymore. We want to use data-driven solutions. Um, I think there are places where our physics-based solutions are so good that I wouldn't see abandoning them very quickly. I think there are problems where our physics-based solutions haven't done, um, you know, haven't given performant solutions, and I, I'm totally fine replacing them with data. If I wanted to pour liquid into a you know, then I think actually that one's on the on the bubble for me. I, I think you know, Flex is an, a, a fantastic physics-based sort of simulator for something like that. Um, you know, soft robotics I think is is this intermediate regime, where I think there are some aspects of soft that might be um, efficiently captured with data, but I still really believe that there's a lot more to to be uh, gained from physics-based understanding. Uh, now I. I think so. The, the the soft simulation we do in Drake, we actually have a new team uh, on the dynamics team working specifically on soft simulation. So you should expect more to come. But the stuff that's in there right now that I talked about in that blog post is um, think of it as a hard endoskeleton with soft skin. So it's um, relatively low deformation mode. Um, you know, we do we 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 think of them as rigid bodies that have. Um, we, we think about the rich contact of those rigid bodies in a low deformation mode. So where a lot of simulators will replace um, the contact between two rigid bodies with a point or a handful of points and summarize the force there, we will go do the extra work to, uh, to compute a surface integral over a contact patch. And we find that leads to much, much more robust um, simulation around some of the, the, the corner cases in, in um, even rigid contact, rigid on rigid contact. And, and it's on this, I think it's a nice trade-off between, uh, you know, computationally ex more expensive solutions and some, something that's performant but robust, seems to reprodu reproduce the real-world experiments very, very nicely. So that's, that's work called the hydroelastic simulation that's been done by um, Michael Sherman and his team. Mm -hmm. So for closing seem to real, I think that's something also interesting because you mentioned that there would be a large also deformation for soft robotics. So I don't know how do you see that kind of a challenge here, because yeah, it's very it's very hard sometimes to do large deformation. Right. I think uh, from the simulation perspective, there's a, there's a couple tiers of extra complexity. So we will we are working on uh, large deformation um, uh, soft simulation now, but even then, I would say we were, we're trying to avoid. The hardest problems in very thin um, filament kind of simulation still that that'll be like for cloth uh, we'll, we'll we won't do cloth in this round yet well that'll be yet another stage of, of evolution so there are really hard I mean just the, the, the fundamental problem with when the simulation is of a very thin material is that you suddenly if you have any penetration whatsoever you can have a puncture and suddenly your contact forces might be coming out the other side of the material and and that gets very hard and it it requires um, you know, a lot of numerical precision to do that well. So, um, no, but I, I, I do think we'll have, you know, so uh, some very, very good um, for non-thin material soft simulation coming very soon. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about pushing the limitation because sometimes, for example, when we see the failure happening in the, for example, soft robot to robots, how we can see that intubating the failure of the in simulation. I don't know, how do you see that also? Is it still limitation or how do you see this point? This has changed a lot. I mean, I remember when we started um, pouring our effort into Drake as an open source project, I remember even my own students were very skeptical. They said, um, 
okay, you can't do manipulation research in simulation. I mean, like in robots, yeah, we've kind of been able to, but manipulation, you can't sim simulate that. And I think between the, um, I mean, around that time is when game engines were being um, realized as having sufficient photorealism to train perception systems, which is just a huge thing. Like that wasn't something people believed in before, and now people do believe in that. And I think um, the context simulation is the other one, to be able to simulate at reasonable rates, you know, sufficiently rich contact so that you actually, we do see um, for pretty sophisticated manipulation tasks, transfer from sim to real. That's, I mean, we really do capture most of our failures in simulation and are able to reproduce them. Not everything. I mean, we, there are examples where we've seen like the rubber pad on our fingertip fell off on the robot. It's like, well, we didn't simulate that. But, but in terms of all of the you know, more manipulation-focused things, um, it really does transfer wonderfully well these days. Mm -hmm. Also, I think very interesting part about that you were conservative about releasing before, make sure it's mature. I think that's very interesting because we had also episode with Professor Peter Cork, and he said that although that I'm really a big advocate of open source, and I really love it, but he said something that it's complexity. It really it leads more complexity, and that's true. Sometimes we struggle sometimes with a lot of bugs, and it doesn't work. But what you mentioned is very interesting that how to make sure that the tools is mature and make sure that it's well maintained, and also because it's yeah. It's I heard I heard his quote. I heard I heard that part of uh, of your episode, and and I thought it was a great uh, insight from 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 Peter. And uh, uh, yeah, he said. Uh, I mean, I think that he's referring to a few things. I think like Ross was a, just a fantastic thing uh, for open source robotics, right? But um, it does lead to people quickly assembling manipulation systems out of a grab bag of parts, where they say, "I'll just grab this system. I'll grab this system. I'll grab this system. I'll put them into a Ross." Um, you know, ecosystem and everything will just start working together. But, um, but it is very fragile uh, when you do that. So uh, <clears throat> it's true. I, I think there are a lot of open source um, tools out there. I think there are a few of them that are um, professionally engineered to the maturity that we've been trying to mature, to mature Drake. The code quality, if you look at the code reviews, um, you know, they just require a lot. The documentation, the, you know, is... Uh, well, it's it's near perfect in terms of punctuation and capitalization. You know, it's like it's it's the quality is very very high, uh, and we've been yeah a little bit more slow and conservative. We don't want people to simulate something for the first time and watch it explode. We wanted to make sure that they don't have that experience when they play with our simulator. So, um, but I think now, having taken time to do it right, I, I'm very very happy with where we are. Mm -hmm. So just to finish about this part, you mentioned that it's really used already, and I see also deployed in startup, and and I just see the tool. It's I don't know how do you see the community should use it or or enhance it. Uh, of course, it's open source, but uh, what kind of maybe you aspire that to push again uh, the limits of that? That's a good question. So so I think. Um... I mean, right now, we, we sort of targeted expert users first, and we've seen that, I mean, just in the sense of um, we're providing kind of a high-end capability, I guess, and yeah. and it is, I think, the people that we've seen using it a lot, and there are, you know, um, big companies and, and startups that are using it a lot, um, they're the ones that, that um, I think started off as experts and, and were able to use the, the, the full maturity of it. And I think now we're in a phase where we're saying, well, I think the tool is 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 working very well, and we want to um, start making it more accessible to more people. So we've been, and we've always had some tutorials and the like, but we've never really prioritized. Partly because, honestly, I was afraid of doing 
support. <laughs> I mean, it's a huge thing to actually support a tool for everybody's questions. But but now that's where that's the phase we're in. We're thinking that it's it's something that deserves to have more impact than we've tried to to give it. So so we're starting to to burn down those other um, issues. Mm -hmm. And maybe also curious about simulation because that sometimes we don't know how to simulate perfectly uncertain environment. It's kind of very complex. I don't know how this uses point as well. Okay, so so that's great. So um, Drake definitely has a state-of-the-art physics engine. It's super good and super proud. Like I, I, I said uh, in that article, I, I think it's one of the most important features. But it's part of an ecosystem of thinking about things as systems that is bigger than the, just the physics engine. So there's a like a rigorous note thinking about stochasticity. Um, so in a in some other simulator, you might be fine just um, adding random numbers in the middle of a simulator, and that's I mean that's perfectly reasonable for a lot of workflows. Uh, we try to encourage a workflow where you declare the randomness through um, through a specific you know way to declare randomness in the system, so that you if you want to I mean you can just simulate it and get random rollouts of simulations if that's what, if you're doing reinforcement learning and that's all you need. But if you wanted to do stochastic or robust control. You know, if you wanted to capture um, Gaussian uncertainty and propagate it through a nonlinear system, then there's some tools for doing that. You know, and if you wanted to to write an optimization that took advantage of particular structure and the uncertainty, then there's opportunities to do that too. So that has been, you know, I think that's where this math comment I made um, is. That's where I show my bias here is that I think um, there's a lot more that we can pull out of the system if we if we hold its structure a little bit farther, a little bit longer, and, and exploit all the detailed structure of the mechanics, of the uncertainty, all these other quantities. Mm -hmm. Great. So coming back to, uh, you have been teaching already on actuated uh, robots, but, and even you mentioned that sometimes Ozeo is working in legged robots, for example, manipulation is very much harder. But I'm curious to ask you in that case, what's something maybe still maybe you think is very challenging in that case? Because... Of course, I will go to the point because I think it's very interesting when you say that we sometimes suppress the dynamics or this kind of physics happened in the robot. And I, I, I saw your talks many times, but I think that even soft robotics is very related that how we can really, yeah, extract this kind of dynamics or understand what could be beneficial or detrimental to the robot. Because I think it's very interesting, uh, that point here. So, so okay, let me be, um, be careful. I, I think that manipulation is harder to simulate. Um, I think that they bring different aspects of, of control. I do think that the diversity and versatility of, of a manipulation system and the, all of the different variety of things you might want to manipulate and, and the levels of complexity there are significant. I think legs are awesome and, and we should, I mean, there's still hard problems there. Um, the dynamics take a more central stage in, in legged robots. I think Spot and the other robots that are built like Spot, Animal's beautiful, and you know, uh, they uh, have captured a particular type of locomotion where you know you have very light legs and point feet and and they basically mastered that and now we we have it's so cool to see robots that are actually going to be out there in the world that are walking and that's that's like um, you know they could be a product now uh, <clears throat> but there's more I mean we haven't completely solved the locomotion problem there's plenty of hard problems still there too I think because. The thing that happened for me is that perception sort of became, it happened. I mean, the, the computer vision revolution with deep learning made perception um, happen to the point where manipulation really is the challenge that 
that we're it's of our time here, right? So so that's the big one of the big reasons that I um, changed my focus to manipulation, and I and I hope I go back. To, I think the lessons I'll learn in manipulation will will transfer back to legged locomotion, and I fully expect to go back there again. Uh, I just like to focus on one thing at a time. Okay, okay, but for the dynamics, Jeff, I don't know if you can elaborate about how we can make sure that the dynamics we use or, or the natural dynamics or the physics is really beneficial or yeah because sometimes when you use a controller it's a question how we can make sure it doesn't really destroy this kind of dynamics happening yeah, yeah. i think that is a beautiful story from passive dynamic walkers is let the physics do the work um we don't hear it as much in manipulation but you do of course hear it you hear about i mean underactuated hands talks about that a bit um, I saw a great talk just uh, recently by Sharon Song talking about flicking towels. If you wanted to make a bed, uh, you know, you want to flick the towel out instead of, um, and flick the sheet out instead of uh, folding it statically. And dynamics matter there. And there's a, there are places in manipulation where dynamics are central and the world has to do the work because you control your robot, but you don't control all the objects in the world completely uh, and you shouldn't aspire to. So that's where the underactuated story transfers directly into manipulation is a, you know, in the limiting case where you have a, 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 a grasp, you know, a form closure, force closure grasp on an object and it moves with your hand, then you basically could be fully, fully actuated again. But even if you have a fully actuated arm bolted to a table, if you started manipulating cloth or something like this, you are definitely in a highly underactuated regime. The dynamics of the world are, are you know, you must respect. <laughs> so. oh, great. So uh, coming back to the controller, I, I, I don't know what you thought about that. Do you think that it could happen, for example, when you mentioned Steve Collins, the example that, do you believe that, what, I don't know, we can replace the controller completely and just using this kind of physics and dynamics. Do you think that's something we can do to replace the controller or does it make sense to you? No, I think they have to work in, a, in concert together, right? I think the, the best controller will do minimal work and let the physics do most of its work, but you want to, I mean, Steve's uh, robot was the most beautiful robot I'd ever seen, but it only walks down ramps. And if you ever want to walk on the flat, you have to do something a little more. Well, he, he had a version that walked on the flat too. But I mean, um, we want to do both, right? I, I love this, this idea of a bird um, soaring in the wind and the wind is doing most of the work, but if it needs to dive you know, to, down to get some food, then it's able to do that and take control. And that's the, the dance, I think, that, that we should have between control and dynamics. And I just only observe that a lot of times we are, um, we're, not, we're, we're using all of our control effort and not enough of the dynamics. Great. And coming back to redundancy in that case, um, I think that's something also very interesting how we, for damage happening to soft robot or robot, how they can adapt to certain situation like that or how we can make sure the redundancy here is efficient in system redesigning. Okay, there's a couple aspects to that, and, I, and you're probably coming at it from, a, from an angle that I haven't thought as much about in terms of the, the healing itself, but um, certainly there are lessons from adaptive control uh, about how do you, um, you know, adapt to failures in the system or just constantly tune while staying, guaranteeing some safety. There's a huge push from, um, from learning-based control now to try to constantly adapt as you're moving so that could... The idea that the controller should continue to adapt as you as you operate the robot, I think, um, is getting a lot of attention and will continue to it will be super important as we go forward. Now, if you are are asking about the the hardware continuing to adapt, I think that is awesome. I think that we should be working on that. Um, 
we should definitely do that. I haven't done any work in that space, but but I think that's a great problem. Mm -hmm. So better than that, do you think um, we should investigate more in the, the software side or the design, the body itself? It's the same dance, right? I think that those things have to be coupled. I think, um, you know, better, we'll see, okay. I do think that um, there are examples, and maybe the first famous one was the early PR2 video where the teleoperated robot was doing most of the tasks we wanted to do in the home, right? And even it was a very, it's a simple robot with a two-finger gripper, but if you put an intelligent enough brain behind it, you can do a lot of very useful things. So I think it would be too simple for us to say the hardware isn't good enough. I don't think that's true. I think if we had a really good um, software stack, then we can do lots and lots of things. But we should keep working on the hardware too, of course. Um, and I think it's it's through those things working together that we're going to re really realize the um, you know the the possibilities of robotics going into new places, doing superhuman performance. I mean, we're already seeing superhuman performance in Atlas, for instance. Atlas um, does things that I can't do. Um, and it's incredible to watch, and we should expect that. You know, they, robots should be um, superior to us in many uh, in many physical tasks. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious in that case, what could be other designs we speak about that the robot can do certain performance we can do as a human and it's related to the fitness and the environment. So I don't know, how do you see uh, maybe inspiration or something beyond what you see already in robotics? And we don't really, yeah, maybe we didn't consider yet. I don't know, for you, do you see any something or like designs that just, you wish were in robotics? When I do think about soft robots, I, I, I wonder how much um, our entire world, I mean, even if I look around me at my keyboard and my, uh, my screen and everything, um, we've engineered a pretty rigid world. And I wonder if we've done that because of our, you know, because that's where Newtonian classical mechanics worked really well and we could engineer ourselves into tight tolerances and that's what we became, began machining very well. And um, it's not clear, though, if you really introduced totally new fabrication techniques and softness everywhere and um, whether we'd really want all of these things. Some of them I would want to be rigid probably, but some of them uh, it might open up the design space enough that, that I wouldn't actually choose all of these things to be very boxy and rigid. Uh, so beyond robotics, I do think, I mean, some of the push that we're making in soft robotics, I hope will actually impact manufacturing more broadly. And of course there's manufacturing more broadly that's influencing robotics. Um, but if, I don't know exactly how to answer the, you know, if there's, is there something I've seen out there that I haven't, we haven't pulled in to robotics? I think in, uh, you know, there's a, any cool idea you had, somebody's built a robot like that at some point, uh, you know, whether it worked well or not is a different question, but there's a lot of people who've done a lot of really cool things um, in robots. Yeah. It's hard to find a, something that's never been tried or never been done. Maybe a in that case, how you, yeah, maybe how we approach the problem, or maybe when you try to, from your experiences, sometimes we have this kind of research question, or I want to do that thing, but how you approach this kind of solution, because sometimes it's uncertain, you know, and you don't know whether you selected the right solution or not. And I, I don't know how we approach new ideas or to find a solution for that, yeah. Well, so that is the art of doing research, I guess. Um... And I think people, different people have different styles. Uh, I do think that um, I do my best to combine uh, rigorous thinking and understanding the details and, and understanding um, 
you know, theorems when appropriate or, 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 or rigorous mathematics, uh, or certainly appreciating them and talking to people who understand them very well. And, uh, but also trying to think big, you know, and, and so, uh, I try to have people in the lab who are, who are thinking outside the box. And I have some people in the lab that really, um, they can bring a, a, a mathematical, uh, talent that, that we didn't have before. And, uh, I like to try to live on that edge and understand when we can take something that was, um, hard, uh, hard to think about before, try to make it a little bit more precise, um, think big, but also think rigorously. And through your career, I don't know if you have any something, a result was counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense to you. I don't know what's surprising. Maybe through the modeling, and but when you try to deploy it in reality, it was surprising or counterintuitive. Yeah, I mean, to say the maybe obvious example recently is this, this idea of over-parameterization having changed the way we think about optimization and that... Um, it getting around some of the, you know, to some extent, getting around some of the hard problems that we think of in non-convex optimization. But as we dig in a little deeper, I think there's some things it does extremely well and other things it, where it hasn't solved the entire non-convex optimization problem. Um, in terms of actual robots, I mean, I, I, um, I think there's robots out there that surprise me all the time. I think uh, in terms of uh, dexterous manipulation, Ishikawa's overclocked robotic hands are some of my favorite. They have, he has these high-speed hands, and uh, uh, if you haven't watched them, you should, should, should look for the high-speed hands by the Ishikawa lab and, and watch them uh, doing high-speed twirling and high-speed uh, dribbling a basketball and catching balls. Uh, this is my favorite uh, example where I just think, oh, that was, that was just beautifully done. I mean, I, I would say that uh, when I was thinking about uh, your podcast, you know, I think... For me, I want to be clear that I, I think about soft robotics probably a little different than a lot of people you talk to. Um, for me, I think of it as, as um, rich contact and, and rich contact sensing, right? So, so for me, it's, a lot of people I think are thinking about the fabrication side of soft robotics, which is hugely important. And uh, I, don't th I, I don't mean to say in any way that it's not important. It's just that I don't work on that as much. For me, it's um, making really rich contact with the world. And, um, you know, there are some soft robots out there that are beautifully designed and then they still only touch the world at their end effector. And I think that's not the point. Come on, you need to like wrap around and, and hug everything uh, and understand the implications for, uh, for control and perception. Because a surprising amount of our understanding about how to program robots has been made where you kind of assume that you're touching the robot at the end effector. And uh, uh, if you think about basic core capabilities like impedance control or something like this. If you, if you don't know where on the robot you're going to be touching, those tools need to be adapted, right? I think there are fundamental challenges, um, even at the simple level of like impedance control. But then if you want to control some underactuated object with rich contact all up and down your body, uh, this is just an open problem. And so those are the parts that really excite me is being able to touch all over the place and thinking about the implications for perception. I really like this point. Um, I don't know, for example, I think this is really, really hard the problem, but I don't know why do you think maybe at the community in soft robotics, we don't focus more on this point because it's, it's challenging, do you believe? Or, or maybe because I think also in your, in your blog, you'd say that in ac academia, sometimes the solution is different. You know, when you work in academic problem, it's just different from real world 
applications. So do you think if you mention a real problem, it's really challenging? I mean, I think there's a natural course of these things. I think the one of the first things we had to do was was open up all these new avenues of fabrication and and to understand what they they could be um, good for. You know, what what actually works? What's reliable? Can we make a soft uh, energy source? Can we? You know, all these different things. These are awesome questions. And now, I mean, some people are definitely doing it already, but I think now is the time where the focus could also include the planning and control more. Now that we start have being able to fabricate some very interesting soft concepts, um, you know, now how do we control them? How do we embed sensors in them? And, and what sensors would enable us to really take advantage of this? I mean, we're changing the mechanics of contact, like in an important way. And, um, you know, I don't think we fully understood the right way to do that. How soft, how stiff should your robot be if you wanted to manipulate the things in the kitchen? What about the things in the garage? Is that a different answer? Um, right? Would you build a different robot? These are great questions. That's a very excellent point. But do you think that, in, I, I think that's, you speak about multi-material, how we can have those kind of hybrid design for compliant and rigid material. How do you see this kind of, because I was looking to even in nature, uh, how they, there's like spider, they build a web, the, to be redundant, or is damage happening? The whole structure still exists, and uh, and it seems this concept is very interesting. But I don't know. Uh, there is kind. There is no kind of methodology how you can arrange them in a certain way or optimize them so that you can achieve a certain functionality. How do you see these problems as well, using different structure with different morphology? Yeah. No, I think. I mean, there's some crazy new cool stuff coming out of of AI for design too, right? Where you can think of new, you know, uh, new shapes, patterns, uh, topologies yeah. that, that have structural properties that didn't come out of our, um, you know, our, our human engineered uh, brain, uh, you know, our engineering brains uh, yet, and they're coming out and they, they can have these, these nice properties. That's a cool area. I don't know, um, I don't know what it's going to look like in a few years, but it's, it's fun to see those kind of designs. Um, the problem, of course, with, with AI and optimization um, is fully specifying the problem, especially for design. I would think, I would think it is that, um, I mean, we have it in control, for instance. So if I, if I say, oh, I want the robot to move forward, the, 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 the most famous example um, in my mind is Carl Sims, who was doing these evolving creatures way back a long time ago with yeah. genetic algorithms. Right? And he says, oh, I want the center of mass to move forward. And so what, what, did, what the robots evolved to do, they, they were extremely tall and they just, when the simulator started, they just fell forward, right? And they go, like, okay, well, that's not what I wanted. I need to hear something else. And people talk about this as the value alignment problem in artificial intelligence. But in design space, I would think it's, it's incredibly tough because a good mechanical designer has so many um, things in their head about what makes this design um, effective materials suppliers you know um you know different you know it's very hard i think to fully specify the problem that you want the design algorithm to to optimize and make sure you didn't miss anything and we face the same problem in controls but i think it's a cool area a very cool area and maybe also a cool question here about the problems you mentioned but when you speak about robotics or soft robotics how we can make sure that if we speak about being in our home for seven years, I don't know how many years, this kind of how we can anticipate they can to continue learning and also to be adapted and be generic. When we publish the paper, sometimes we speak about once in like the lifetime, we don't go for the whole lifespan or just, yeah, I don't know if you agree with that or. No, absolutely. 
We, uh, we have a couple projects happening right now at TRI, and it's, it speaks to this actually. We, so we have the soft robotics project, which um, you've talked to Alex Ausbach about, and Puno, uh, the Puno project, which by the way, they're hiring. So if anybody's listening and wants to do soft robotics at, at TRI. Um, but also uh, the other two projects, actually, one of them we call intuitive. Phys- this is just on the manipulation team in Cambridge that, I, that I've been working with. Um, we have a project on intuitive physics, and we have a project on lifelong learning. And the lifelong learning, I think, is exactly what you're talking about, where you think about the fact that um, you know, there's some amount of data coming, some type of data that's coming in right now. There's some situation that the robot is in now. And of course, you'd like to optimize to some extent to that current data. But um, the robots, the data, the distribution of the data, you know, whether it's the weather, the changes over the course of a year, or the, the body that changes over the course of a lifetime, how do you continue to adapt? And how quickly do you adapt to this changing distributions? You would like to somehow um, you know, be better at making do, at grilling on the barbecue in the summer, but not forget how to make your favorite Christmas uh, dinner, right? Um, uh, every, every year. Somehow there's a trade-off between how we specialize and how we generalize. And I think the lifelong learning is a theme, you know, that, that's a very popular in machine learning right now. It captures this idea very nicely. There's hard theoretical questions there, and there's, um, you know, lots of interesting practical ideas. Wonderful. Yeah, that's a good point. But maybe a quick question here. Do you think there is something, speaking of robotics, or maybe straw to our eye, in designing some unavoidable trade-offs? Because sometimes we, we have the trade-off, we can't really get rid of that. I don't know if you have something like that. Give me an example of what you what what you mean. Yeah, I, I'm speaking for soft robotics. Sometimes, when especially in soft robotic actuators, sometimes we have very low speed uh, actuator, and for the sake of having high force, so that's a trade-off here. And we still don't know how, how we can have actuator with very high, sp- of course, very sp- speed uh, and also enough forces. But there's something still a limitation and a trade-off apparently. So that, that helps me. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, even the, the very question of like how soft should an end effector be or, a, or an appendage, if I want to have a robot, uh, you know, we've worked on robots loading the dishwasher, we've worked on robots doing, you know, a lot of kind of household tasks. You, you, if, of course, if you're too soft, then you can't do more precise control, right? You, you are, there is some fundamental compromise there. I think if you want to be very high speed, very precise, then it's actually better to be hard. So I think you do walk some trade-off um, in the design space between softness and hardness, right? The, um, right. The fundamental thing is, is is about bandwidth. I think more than anything, right? If you if you put uh, the series elastic actuator for me is a clear way to think about it. So if you if you take a series, uh, you take a rigid actuator, let's say, and you put a series element inside it, then how does that change the the control you can do at the end? Like it, it's great in the sense that you can. Um, uh, you can, if you have a sudden impact, you are protecting your actuator from this sudden impact. That's a great um, bonus of having softness, of course. Uh, but it also means it reduces the bandwidth of your control at the end effector, right? You can only control it, to, you know, through the stiffness of that spring. So I think that does characterize a trade-off that's real in terms of uh, if you choose a particular mechanical design. Now, variable stiffness series elastic actuator became a, a thing to do, and you know, I could totally see, uh, and I'm sure there's work already on variable stiffness materials 
Um, I, know, I guess I know there's some materials that are variable stiffness already that um, could change that even, you know, if you imagine if your skin were to get harder or softer actively in order to accommodate, that's super cool. Yeah, so maybe we can pick the question. So Robert asks you, what do you think are the most important advancement that needed to happen in, um, in materials to move soft robotics field forward? I, so in the short term, um, you know, I think reliability is, uh, so when we've worked with soft sensors and soft, um, you know, end effectors and the like, uh, we trade off uh, how quickly we can iterate through them and, and how reliable they are, right? If we start manipulating a lot of things, our, our soft uh, sensors, uh, our soft materials start to degrade that's just uh, needs more, you know, to some extent, it just needs more engineering work to dial in the durability with the, um, you know, the, the particular material properties we're looking at. But that in the short term, I do feel that there's some pain still there. Uh, in the long term, I think self-healing is perfect. I think that's, yeah, I think you're working on the right thing. So, um, I mean, to, to think that uh, a robot after it's left the lab could continue to exist, even if it takes a little damage or something like that. I think, I think that is a beautiful dream. Wonderful. And I also have a question from Chamel. I think you, you answered for part of that, but he asks you, you initially work at Illigid Robots when you are full-time at MIT, then you switch it to manipulation. Why did you give up Illigid Robots? And what are the current challenges in Illigid Robots? And if someone uh, need a new lab in Illigid Robots, what she sh should focus on? Aha, a new lab in Illigid Robots. So there's definitely important hard questions in legged robots and I wouldn't say I've, I've given up on them. I just, um, like I say, I, mm. I like to, um, to focus. And I think the interaction between perception and control is super rich in manipulation, but I think it could be a lot richer in terms of locomotion too, right? Um, I think most of our locomotion systems today perceive the world mostly as either something I can step on or something I shouldn't step on. Um, and roughly geometry, um, you know, there's there's higher forms of manipulation of, of locomotion possible. Most of our locomotion systems, um, you know, touch the world with only a few uh, preordained spots on the robot still. And this is the soft robotics thing, right? I mean, so so uh, you know, if, if I can, if I'm allowed to make contact all over my body, not just at my feet, then I can potentially open up many more um, you know types of locomotion. That's still hard. I think that's still hard. Um, I wonder how well Spot can do it, for instance, but um, I think there's there's probably cases that would, would throw even Spot for a loop right now. Uh, I think that the, yeah, the hardware has gotten has gotten so much better. Uh, you know, uh, the hardware that we see in Spot and Atlas and in, in these other robots is just fantastic. So uh, the one thing I maybe wouldn't recommend, I used to build little-legged robots myself, and we used, you know, uh, and our passive walkers, we would build ourselves and the like. I, that would be a, it's harder to get into design for legged robots. Not, I mean, you'd have to be a, just take a different take on design because now that industry is involved, I think the field has changed a bit. And I remember when it started happening, I, I went to some of my friends who were in fields that had already gone through that transformation, like semiconductors and other things. And I said, so how does this work now that industry has come into our field and I can't compete, you know, I can't build a robot this with, that a team of 100 engineers could build in an MIT lab. So you, it, you just have to, I mean, you think you collaborate with industry um, and, you, um, and you find, 
you, the problems that are a few years out that um, industry isn't thinking about yet that you can still do at a scale. But this is a great place for the field to have gone. I mean, this is this is success. So so it's not a bad thing. It just means that you have to be a little bit more strategic. I like wouldn't try to build a robot that's competing directly with Spot. I think Spot's pretty amazing and hard to beat. So. And you also spoke about simplicity. And I'm curious about what you mean about simplicity. Is it mean about the design or the um, capturing the significant data? Because when you, for example, the design, what could be the first step that you have to consider or more significant to you? I don't know if you can a little bit more about simplicity here. Yeah. So let me speak about it from the language, from the, from the lens of control, because I've, I've thought about that maybe the most. Um, I do a lot of work in optimal control, for instance, and using optimization, uh, even if it's not optimal, but a, a, you know, approximately optimal control. Um, and I think there's super powerful tools there. Um, a lot of times though, I think we're still in the regime where um, we take a problem, we put it through this recipe, and the thing we get out is fairly complicated. And um, I believe that when we start asking the right questions of our optimization, the thing that pops out the other end is very simple. And the reason I think that is because there are people, have always been people, um, we have some in our lab, both at MIT and at, at TRI, that um, we like to call them robot whisperers, who can program a robot. You, if you say, I want my robot to do X, where X is almost anything, People can write very simple controllers relatively. They can do incredibly impressive things, maybe in a narrow domain. But if you just say, I want to just, just make it happen once, you know, give me a controller, or even sometimes very robustly. But it just take, it takes them a lot of creativity and time, so it's maybe not the, we, it won't compete with a learning solution in the long run. But the things that they can write down are potentially very, are often very, very simple. And, and the things that... Um, it's hard to know what we're getting out of reinforcement learning right now. Um, you know, the even when we, we talk about deep RL, um, deep reinforcement learning, a lot of times the actual control network is actually not that deep. It's only a couple layers of uh, and and hundreds of neurons. Uh, so I don't. It's hard to know how how complicated or how simple those are. But I do. I think uh, I believe strongly that a lot of the tasks we want our robots to do can be represented, can be accomplished with relatively simple controllers and that simplicity will ultimately give, lead to robustness. So, um, and just happiness for as researchers, like we've understood something, we've compressed something very complicated yeah. into something we can understand. Um, that's, I think, success for me. Wonderful. So, so since of course at the end, I have a few questions. Maybe the first one, I think, from the experience you had in, in academia and now industry, I don't know what could be sometimes be differences you in way of thinking, because I, we spoke uh, previous episode with some people, they mentioned this sometimes there's differences in way of thinking. I don't know for you what was different. It's, there's important ways of, of thinking. I mean, it's definitely different. Um, very complementary, I would say. Um, like in a robotics lab, I think one thing that's different. So when I, when I have my MIT hat on and I'm talking to my MIT students, uh, one of the things we try to do is I, I always try to make sure that every student individually has a project that will lead to their thesis that is unique and, and, and different, right? So everybody has an intellectual core nugget. Um, and that ultimately limits to some extent what we can do in the group. Um, 
sometimes, and when we did the DARPA challenge, actually, we kind of threw that aside and said, let's just make this robot work no matter what. And it doesn't matter uh, if Greg did this or Lucas did this. It was just, let's make the robot work. I think in industry, uh, industrial research, uh, there's a little bit more of that attitude. We're going to try to make something happen that's never happened. Uh, of course, that's true in both. But um, the role of the individual is, is down a little bit and the role of the outcome is up a little bit. And I think that can just change the type of, um, of outcomes that you get. You can get some spectacular, you know, demonstrations. We often combine engineering, you know, professional engineers with researchers so we can get more spectacularly engineered systems. Uh, so it, there are different focuses in those two, different mindsets in those two. Uh, but I think they're very complementary. And actually, the um, I think one of the great things that TRI did was by putting themselves next to Stanford and next to Michigan and next to MIT, um, you kind of have a lot of a, a very good flow of information there. Uh, and MIT, my gosh, I, I would never, uh, I mean, I just love MIT. I just love the people I get to interact with. I just feel lucky every day. Wonderful. Yeah. And I don't know if you have moment of doubt sometimes when we, I don't know, do you have any moment of doubt or in your career or in the projects you're doing? Because sometimes we doubt sometimes. I don't know if you have moments like that. Oh, sure. Um, well, in the, in the micro scale, I sometimes wonder if the thing I'm working on is going to be important. Um, in the macro scale of like my career. Um, yeah, I, I think that it'll be interesting to see uh, what type of impact we totally have. I feel proud of the things that have already happened and the impact that I feel that I've had. Uh, I hope I continue to contribute things to the world, but um, of course it's a constant question of, am I working on the right things? Um, you know, how fast is the world changing? Am I keeping up? But I think if you, only keep up, then you're going to chase a lot of, uh, of uh, maybe, um, you know, shiny, shiny new ideas, but maybe not stay true to your core focus. So I think for, for a lot of us today, I would say that's a big challenge is that the, the, you know, machine learning has brought so many new people in and so many, there's so much excitement and so much enthusiasm. Um, it's hard to know how much to chase the newest results versus stay true to a particular philosophy or approach that you that I've had for years. I, uh, so I think finding the balance there is always a, a place that I, I question myself and I, and I yeah. challenge myself. Mm -hmm. And when you try to think about maybe crazy ideas, sometimes when you think, I, I wish that something would happen down the road, like 10, 20 years, I don't know what you think. Do you have any kind of thought like that or you are more pragmatic about I definitely, let's see, I, sometimes I pride myself in being willing to have a crazy idea. Sometimes my students definitely roll their eyes at me. Um, in a weird way, I actually feel like we, we, we had RSS this past week, uh, this, this, this week, it's still going, I guess. Um, I think the, we have a lot of people with crazy ideas right, right now. I don't, I don't think... I need to have lots of crazy ideas right now. I think the field's got a lot of them. Um, so, so which is good, which is awesome. It's an ex it's a time of great change and great excitement. Um, maybe I feel like the thing I need to I could help with the field is is um, you know low pass filtering a little bit and 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 sticking true to some of the things that I that I know and believe in. So I go back and forth with this. I think uh, I try to take the pulse of the field, but I'm not worried about the field 
having too few crazy ideas right now. I think it's it's a it's a very vibrant time. Perfect. So a few questions. First one, is ego important for you as a researcher when you have new ideas? I don't know. How do you deal with the ego? Ego of, of, of whether it's a good idea that, or whether I'm a good researcher. You know, I do think there's a, there's a thing that happens when you're a young researcher trying to prove yourself. I would say, you know, I don't know if you want to call it imposter syndrome or something like that. Um, I think I've mostly gotten past that. I mean, I like I... I uh, yeah, I, I don't think that, uh, I think I have, I've come to terms with what, what I've, uh, you know, I'm happy with what I've contributed. I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I hope I can continue to contribute more. Uh, I probably worry too much about, uh, you know, whether my paper gets, is going to be the, you know, am I, am I writing a paper right now that's going to get cited a lot? I still worry about that probably, um, just, you know, that's the human nature maybe, but but less than I used to, <laughs> and uh, uh, and that's good. I, I really what I just want. I just want to be uh, working on robots most of the time. That's all I really need left. <laughs> what could be the most important quality? Um, maybe you have gained. I I I keep I do keep track of this kind of thing. You know, I like what what have I gained from interacting with different people? And there's different people who have given me so many different things. And TRI has given me some incredible views of the world that I never had before. And the people, there's some incredible people at TRI that make, that open my eyes. Um, you know, at MIT, there's, I, I would say, um, if I had to point out the single biggest influence, I'd say on the way I think about things, it's been interacting with um, optimization and controls people at MIT and the way that they see the world with such clarity. Um, I think that Robotics can achieve that, should achieve that. Now, controls, uh, I mean, a lot of people in machine learning complain because controls often uh, encrypt what they, what these ideas that they've had and don't communicate them in a way that it's accessible to everybody. So um, uh, I hope we can do better with that. But I, I think the, the clarity of thought that um, can be applied to even very, very complex systems is something that I that I think MIT has given me that I hope to carry forward as far as I possibly can. That's a good point. Maybe a quick question here. What? How do you make sure you have this kind of clarity of soul? Because sometimes we have this kind of, yeah, that trendy thing. Or how do you make sure this have, or enhanced to be clear in thinking the problem? What could contribute on that? I don't. Also, I also don't want to su suggest that. Um, being audacious and going beyond what you can think clearly about today, I think there's there's important things to do there too. But I um, I think more I, I'm not willing to say uh, the bitter lesson. Let's say that that uh, that that clear thinking of humans is just going to slow us down. Uh, data tells the story, and and simple algorithms applied uh, at large scale will solve everything. Not maybe it will solve everything, and I'm 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 actually not against that. I did that in principle, um, but as a scientist, I feel like my job is to to distill the complexity into something beautiful and simple that we can um, you know mm -hmm. generalize as much as possible, understand as deeply as possible, and if just to, just to make me a happy individual, that's that's my goal. So. Um, but I think those things are in a happy tension. 
to, to, to do some crazy things that we can't possibly understand, change the, realize we haven't been thinking about things the right way, but then follow them up with some, um, some rigorous thinking. That's so great. So lastly, I don't know if through your career or project, I don't know anything was kind of advice shifted your way of thinking. Yeah, I don't know, maybe early on that something, it's something changed your perspective or advice received or something makes you shift your way of thinking, maybe towards problems or I don't know, in general. I, I would say this, that I, I would, that the answer I just gave, I think is, is the best example. Um, you know, definitely the, the thinking about things. I mean, I started at Michigan, uh, University of Michigan, uh, learned a ton there, I learned how to be a computer engineer, computer scientist, learned so much. Um, when I came to MIT, I learned that I hadn't treated mathematics seriously enough and, and the rigorous thinking started more than, you know, I, when I came to, when I joined TRI, I, I, I one-upped my, or I, I definitely upgraded my software uh, skills. Uh, and I've learned from some extremely talented software engineers, and I um, continue to learn in all of these areas all the time. And the best thing I can do from my perspective is just to surround myself with people that know a lot more than I do about different things and continue to try to grow and make better robots. Great, wonderful. So I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say for what's community. Do you have any final words you'd like to say? Yeah, I think... Um, I think soft robotics is this is incredible time. I really think um, we don't know exactly where it's going to pay off, but um, I suspect, I guess I, I completely believe that robots are not going to look the same in a few years that they, as they look right now. I don't think anybody wants the robots we're building right now in their living room. Um, and I think softness can help with that. I think better manufacturing can help with that. Uh, I think. AI and controls and optimization is going to play a role in that, but bringing these all together is just a fantastic thing to do, and, and I, I'm ex looking forward to the next few years. Thanks so much for us. It was very inspiring and really enjoy listening to you. Thanks. Oh, great. Thank you for doing it. Okay.